people have been talking about the death of office for a long time. People have been talking about remote work forever. And I personally never really thought I would see it happen. It just seemed to be such an entrenched practice that we're all coming into the office. By and large, the practices we adopted over the pandemic proved to be quite transient. And it's quite remarkable that remote work is proving to be one of the shifts that is more durable. Economists, professors and analysts alike have examined the figures behind the cultural shift we're experiencing with the return to office, but no reports have had such provocative titles as one released over summer named Work From Home and the Office Real Estate Apocalypse. This particular paper, a collaboration from professors from Columbia School of Business and NYU School of Business, was released over the summer and updated in the last two weeks. It examines the kind of value destruction that office properties may face if remote work is here to stay. The picture is not pretty. I'm Miriam Hall. This is BizNow Reports. And my guest is Arpit Gupta. He's an Associate Professor of Finance at NYU Stern. And he's one of this report's authors. In one scenario it examines, the scenario where remote work does not reverse itself, The report states that values of office buildings could be down by 60% by 2029. In dollar terms, the report is estimating a $49 value reduction in New York City. But there are complexities in this, and a lot is based on predictions, estimations and projections. Arpit delves into some of these intricacies in the report, as well as some of the positive aspects of this societal change a little later in our conversation. First, though, I asked him about the market reaction to the term apocalypse and whether he's experienced much pushback. So we've spoken to a number of people in the real estate industry. I would actually say from the investing side, I had one person I talked to recently who said, at this point, your work is sort of a consensus view among investors in real estate. So I think it's certainly a matter of debate what's going to happen. There are many people on the investing side who seem to agree with their conclusions. The market pricing for a lot of securities like office REITs, I think also reflects a a dismal viewpoint. But there are others who are taking the other side of that trade and are hoping that there are going to be a brighter future ahead for the office. Does that come down to owners, would you say? It's certainly the owners, I think, would, would like to believe that there's a future for the office. I think there's also many people I've spoken with who are at companies and their own firms actually believe in the future of the office. These are predominantly going to be firms that are not spending as much of their overall expenses on the office. They're a little bit less financially constrained that still think there's going to be a future for the office. Yeah, it's interesting um, how a lot of people have very different views about this and are very kind of steadfast in their views and are not moved by even facts and figures, really. Yeah, and I, I want to emphasize that uh, our research, which is uh, joint with Stanley Neuberg and Brenda Mittal, is really trying to emphasize not only our best guess of the likely impacts of remote work, but we're also trying to highlight the risk and uncertainty. And we think that is kind of crucial because it's playing a key role in our results because we think that remote work is changing not only the cash flows for offices, but also the riskiness and hence the discount rate that applies to offices. And it also plays a role because we're trying to forecast a range of scenarios in futures, some of which do feature people returning back to the office. So we're trying to acknowledge that uncertainty as well in our research. So let's talk a little bit about the adaptations that you've made. You came out with the report in the summer, and it did get a lot of attention because it does have that um, scary word, uh, apocalypse, in it. You've now released an update 
what have you seen as a change? Is is the outlook better, worse, something similar? Our estimates are largely similar. We've updated in time a little bit, so tried to take a little bit more recent data. We've tried to better account for how we measure our sample and how we're extrapolating from New York City to going up to the whole country. So we've tried to account for that coverage issue a little bit. But in terms of our overall picture, that's remained largely unchanged from our first draft. And in the intervening period, there have been a lot of big picture changes in the marketplace, uh, most notably the concerns about recessions and concerns related to higher interest rates. Part of that is playing a role in our analysis so far, because we're allowing for the possibility that there might be a recession in the future, and we're also accounting for higher interest rates. But we may see trends that are happening that are beyond the scope of our work so far. Let's dig in a little bit to the actual figures. So from what I've read, they're quite stark. You do have predictions of um, what could happen to office valuations in New York. Can you walk me through what you're predicting will happen? We consider two cases. One in which remote work is here to stay. In that world, we project that the value of New York City office buildings might decline by as much as 60% by 2029. In our base case scenario, we account for the possibility that we might see that dire outcome or we might actually see people return back to the office. And that estimate results in a forecast of 39% decline in long-term value by 2029, incorporating both the positive forecasts of people coming back to the office, as well as the more negative implications that would happen if remote work proved to be more persistent. So if I'm understanding that correctly, the best case scenario is potentially a 39% decrease in office valuations. So our estimate of that 39% um, averages across the best case scenario and the worst case scenario. So there are certain estimates that would feature a more optimistic return back for the office, and that's a world in which employers and employees are just much more likely to come back in. So this is the, but that is the most likely scenario based on what you're finding. That's the most likely scenario. That's right. Averaging across the best case and worst case. How did you figure that out considering the complexities of the office market in that most of it is not publicly traded and there haven't been that many sales? Yeah, you've hit on the key complication that has made our work really hard is to try to account for the opacity of the asset class, the difficulty of transactions. And so to do so, we have built an asset pricing model that's intended to do a bottom-up valuation of office buildings and of office markets, where we incorporate as much data as we can from public markets and augment that with other information from Comstack, which has broader coverage of the office real estate world in general, so including leasing revenues from a much broader sample of buildings. And so we're combining that information together and arriving at an estimate of what's going to happen to office demand under different scenarios. Uh, we consider four main scenarios, a expansion and recession states like we had before the pandemic in which people are in the office, as well as a work-from-home expansion and a work-from-home recession. So we're estimating what's going to happen to office demand in these four scenarios. We're estimating how persistent we think these remote work trends are going to be. We calibrate and measure that given what we've seen in public markets. And we combine all this together to create a series of forecasts for what might happen in the future. And the 39% value decline number comes from the average value across all those forecasts. What I'm hearing a lot of is estimate um, what we think 
It was very hard because there's a lot of uncertainty there. Can you break down what you do know for for real and what is based on a, a collection of possibilities? Great question. So what we know for real is what has happened so far with the office market over the pandemic. And what we observe is that real leasing revenue has declined by about 16, 17% in New York City. And that's actually pretty consistent with what we see around the country. So there's been a big decline in that leasing revenue. That's coming in part from the fact that rents are lower in real terms. And a lot of it's coming from the fact that vacancies are a lot higher. So the vacancy rate in Manhattan, for example, is higher than at any point in the last 30 years. So those are just some things that we can observe in the data that tell us that there seems to have been a big shock to the office market. And our goal on the asset pricing side is to try to take those data points, which we do believe in, and try to forecast and come up with estimates for numbers that we're trying to project out into the future just to get our best guess at how these trends are likely to impact valuation. Do you use castle data, um, for example, to figure out the occupancy? We have that as a data point that we look at. So it's part of the descriptive analysis we do to try to see what has happened to the office. And so like many others, we use that as a barometer to try to gauge how often people are physically in the office. But we don't numerically use any of those values because we're primarily interested in what's happening to office revenues, right? And so a tenant could be using the office uh, by having their employees in there. They could not be using the office. At the end of the day, what really matters is whether they're leasing that space. And so to get a better sense of that, the main thing that we've done to understand firms' decisions over this time period is to actually look at their back-to-work policies. So we've classified these for a number of employers, and we have tried to understand how often employers are posting for fully remote positions as opposed to in-office positions. That allows us to get a handle on how many remote jobs there are as opposed to in-person jobs. And to also understand the full spectrum of choices that employers can choose by classifying their hybrid schedules, how many days of the week they're planning coming back in. And we find that these choices that employers are making do seem to predict their space demand. So if a firm is more likely to have fully remote employees in their hiring plans, if they're more likely to have a fully remote work plan, back to office plan, they're less likely to demand space. So that to us suggests that there is something about remote work. It probably doesn't line up 100% with physical occupancy, but it's probably related. And that seems to predict their office demand. Because that is something that I have heard a fair bit from office owners, uh, not surprisingly, that even if firms do go to hybrid, there's no real correlation between making decisions to shrink their space. But it sounds like there is actually a correlation and and it's it's bearing out in the data. We do see an association because firms that have hybrid work plans where the employees are coming in some number of days of the week, these firms are demanding less space compared to firms that have a fully in-person presence. And when we look at the number of days that firms are projecting for their back-to-work plans, the more days of the week that they ask their employees to come in, the more space they demand. So it may not be one-for-one, but we think that there are a range of things that firms can do to try to economize on space demand. These include strategies like hoteling, hot desking, and neighborhoods, which all enable them to have lower space demand, even if they're hybrid. How have you lifted the hood, so to speak, 
in terms of looking at these leases because leases are, are quite typically quite long term. So how do you know what their demand is? Is it that like they're in the market for office space or that they're, they're talking to brokers or they're actually signing deals? Like how, break down how that works. Yeah, this is a, a key point that we really emphasize in our research. That means that the impact on the office is really going to be a long-term story, not a short-term one. Because to your point, only 38% of leases have come due over the pandemic, meaning that the vast majority of firms haven't even had to make an active space decision. They may have subleased their existing space, or they may have gotten out of their lease that they're already in. But for the most part, firms that are in existing lease commitments are just waiting until the end of that lease period. And so what we've done is to look at how often firms have made an active space decision when they have the choice, right? When these leases are coming due. That's the critical number that we are using in our analysis to help forecast what are the likely implications of this shock for office buildings, taking into account the fact that it will take time for these leases to kind of come due. So only 38% of leases came due over 2020 and 2021. Is that right? Yeah, that's so right. So that's, that's not a huge amount, but it is actually kind of significant. What do we know from the leases? Seeing as we only really know about things that have already happened, what do we know about those leases? Well, I think the clearest sign of what's happened over the last couple of years uh, has to do with the occupancy statistics, right? So when we look, for example, at Manhattan, we see that there's over a 20% vacancy rate for Manhattan offices. And so that reflects the fact that that relatively small fraction of leases that have come due have had a disproportionate impact in driving overall vacancy rates because we see such stark changes just in a couple of years. Right. So we can even just look at just the, that small amount of time in the in office leasing years and already we can draw a conclusion from that. That's right. And we then kind of use the data that's already happened to make an informed prediction about what is the likely future impact of these remote work shifts on the overall office market, taking into account the fact that firms will have less space demand if they're more likely to adopt these remote working practices. So tell me about a stranded asset. What does that mean when we're talking about an office building? So in general, when we talk about stranded assets, we think about assets that have kind of moved from becoming assets to liabilities. So that's commonly discussed in the context of climate change, for example, because we might be thinking of an oil rig that is much less valuable than it once was because of shifting concerns about climate change, for instance. With respect to these office buildings, what we're kind of worried about is some of these office buildings may just become much less valuable than they currently are because the demand just isn't there for the employers to want that building. That risk is highest for the older buildings, the lower quality buildings for which the demand has decreased the most. These are going to be the buildings that then suffer the highest increases in vacancies. And there will be then difficult decisions about what to do with these buildings. Will they be repurposed? Will will they be used in other ways, as well as the broader financial consequences of the declines in values? It's going to make it harder for the owners of these buildings to service their debt commitments. Ultimately, the debt on these buildings will come due. And city governments also rely on tax revenue levied on these buildings as well, which may be impaired in the coming years. Yeah, I was going to say, if there's a massive decrease in valuations, there's a massive decrease in the tax, which means massive decrease in the kind of funds that are coming into city governments. Yeah, we, we are worried about that trend for a variety of reasons. The most direct channel is going to be that office buildings themselves provide a fairly substantial 
component of overall city coffers in the form of property taxes. In New York City, we also have a direct rent tax. In addition to just the office buildings, you also have associated retail. And those retail establishments in the vicinity of the central business district have also been impacted. But there are a variety of other knock-on consequences as well. So you're seeing less commuter traffic into the central business district. You're seeing some workers move away either from the metropolitan area or the city altogether. That's lost income tax revenue. And finally, the fact that you have fewer people in the area, fewer commuter trips, that also makes it harder to have the eyes on the street that's necessary for a sense of public safety. So all these effects can kind of compound and build on each other. And that leads to this possibility for an urban doom loop. That's this threat that worsening demand for the office might lead people to move away. The drop in revenue that's resulting for city coffers means that city governments, as a consequence, have to either cut back on spending or raise taxes. Those fiscal impulses then may drive more people to leave the area, and the problems can compound themselves. We've seen these dynamics play out in recent decades in New York City in the 70s in the wake of the decline in manufacturing, same in Detroit as well. New York City bounced back from the shift in manufacturing by moving into offices, and that's now the sector that's at, that's at risk. This is a very, very gloomy paper, I have to say. Apocalypse, doom and gloom. I mean, is it is it as bad as all of that? I mean, is there, do you have any sense of sort of optimism? based on what you, the data that you gather? Well, in some prior work, we have also looked at the impacts on the suburbs. And so it's a much more optimistic picture for the suburbs because that's where people have been moving to and people with the ability to work remotely, maybe even a few days a week, are much more likely to stay in the suburbs and commute in just a couple of days a week. So it's a very bright picture for the suburbs, potentially also for certain Sunbelt cities that have done a good job of attracting residents. In our paper, we look at the impacts, for example, on other markets, including Austin. So it's a brighter outlook for Austin. And in particular, the future for the Austin office market looks more rosy compared to San Francisco or New York. So it's certainly a bright spot for certain cities and for certain parts of the cities. But we think there are important challenges with respect to the center business district. It's also a bright picture for firms and employees in many other ways. People seem to really like remote work. Firms seem to do okay having adopted remote working practices. And so this is likely just to be the future of how we work and will have a variety of implications on business uh, and urban life for years to come. In the previous paper, I believe you had a figure on how much value was being wiped off. It was billions um, from the New York City office market. Can you give me a sense of what that was and how that may have changed? And then put that in a national context. You mentioned some some cities that have that are looking brighter. Let's talk beyond New York City. Where is um where is not experiencing this kind of intense challenge? Right. So we estimate a forty five percent decline in value in twenty twenty itself. That's the depth of the recession. And that value stabilizes up to about a thirty nine percent drop. Um in, as of 2021, that's kind of remaining flat in the coming coming years. So that basic result has remained quite similar across our different calculations. What uh, we've also done is try to add that up to a sense of what that might imply for the aggregate shock to uh, New York City overall or to the country. So for New York City, we're estimating a value reduction of about $49 billion dollars. 
And the challenging part is to aggregate that up to the entire country. How do we do that given that we have data that's a little bit better in New York City compared to other places? So our current estimate is the extrapolation to the whole country results in a value decline, long-term value decline of about $450 billion. So that's our best guess based on the numbers that we've done most in, in the most detailed way in New York City. We've also compared what's happening in other cities in the U.S., so particularly looking at the San Francisco and Austin market. So we find more of a value decline in San Francisco, less of a value decline in Austin, consistent with the idea that there have been some firms and employees moving into the Austin market and a little bit more of an exodus out of San Francisco, perhaps because of all the tech tenants. Yeah, it doesn't, um, it doesn't bode well for the city, does it? <laughs> well, well, I think this is a big picture shock, which will be something that we're all grappling with and dealing with in the years to come. And I think there are many bright spots of how remote work is impacting workers and employees. So, you know, just one example, we see that the employment rates for individuals with disabilities is actually a lot higher than it's been in previous years. And it's been suggested that's because people who formerly had difficulties accessing work in traditional labor markets have been able to use remote work and find employment instead. And so I think there are just a range of different impacts and shocks that will reverberate in the years to come. We're focusing both on the positive and negatives. In this paper, we're focusing a little bit more on some of the negative attributes for the office sector in particular, as well as the broader consequences for cities. But we think that ultimately, you know, our, our paper is really about the short and medium run. It's about trying to understand the shock that happened think about the implications and let people know this is something they should be thinking about. In the very long run, who knows, we could be all back in the office in, you know, a decade or two from now because we've realized that remote working just doesn't work for us. We're not getting the productivity benefits, the culture. That's one thing that could happen a decade or two from now. It's also possible that we are all in the metaverse, you know, two decades from now as well. So, you know, who knows what the very long term will hold. We're interested in the immediate future. This is such an interesting time. I mean, put aside like all the worries and fears and uncertainty. This is a really interesting time where the city is kind of reshaping itself a bit. And we are reshaping as like working people, like how we do our work is completely different to what it used to be like. Yeah, I think it's a fascinating time period because we start off our paper with a quote and it's from the management guru, Paul Drucker. And he talks about a future in which offices are obsolete because people are working from home. And I like that quote because it's, it's actually over 30 years old, right? And so people have been talking about the death of office for a long time. People have been talking about remote work forever. And I personally never really thought I would see it happen. It just seemed to be such an entrenched practice that we're all coming into the office. And it's just remarkable to see the changes that have happened. Over the pandemic in general, we saw a lot of changes in general that basically all reverted. So I, I remember when we were all putting our groceries outside, you know, we didn't want to like let them, you know, let the packages into our buildings immediately or when everyone was wearing masks all the time, when we thought we weren't going to shake hands again, you know, by and large, the practices we adopted over the pandemic proved to be quite transient. And it's quite remarkable that remote work is proving to be one of the shifts that is more durable. If two years ago you wanted to be a remote worker, you might be the only remote worker in your company. And it's hard to be the only person moving in that way. Whereas now you might, you know, we all had this collective learning process where we figured out how to work online, work remotely, work with other people at our company in different spaces. And that collective investment is something that we realized was working well enough. And 
firms ultimately are calculating the cost of providing this level of in-person experience. So the typical firm in New York City spends around $16,000, $20,000 per employee that is in the office. So it's a high amount of expense. And you have to really think that you're getting that level of additional productivity or impact from that employee as a result of making that investment. And I think there are going to be a lot of firms that decide, yes, we think that the value of the culture, the value of the experience of being in the office is sufficiently valuable, that it's worth making that expenditure. And I think a lot of firms are instead going to decide, no, we'd rather take the savings, especially because the employees prefer it too. Do you know much about how the types of firms that are electing for hybrid and which firms are doing it well? I mean, I think there are two factors. One is how amenable the type of job is to remote working practices. And so there are researchers out there on Dingle and Nyman who have calculated for each occupation a score for how remote amenable that profession is. And that winds up correlating quite closely with realized remote working practices in that occupation. So if you independently looked at the job, looked at the task, and thought it was a more or less remote friendly occupation, that's been close to what's been realized. So I I think that's one factor. Another factor, I think, is bargaining power. So in tech in particular, the employees have a lot of bargaining power, and they've been able to use it in the last couple of years to demand remote working practices. That may be different in other fields where the employees don't have as much bargaining power, maybe like first-year law associates. Are you on the uh, on the side of the, the recession is going to bring people back to the office or the recession is not going to bring people back to the office? Have you formulated a view there yet? So we do take a stance on this in our modeling approach because we are trying to forecast and model future economic states that feature recessions, expansions, work-from-home expansions, and work-from-home recessions. And our base estimate for what a work-from-home recession will look like is actually something like 2020, when we had a recession come in and we had a lot of remote work. And what we saw back then is that there was pretty heavy exodus out of the office, not just in terms of physical presence, but those firms that were making lease decisions in that year were quite likely not to renew their leases. And my guess is that pattern is going to continue in the future. Because it may be true that a recession changes the bargaining power and so makes it easier for the employer to call that worker back into the office. But at the same time, the bigger factor, I think, is that recessions are times historically when employers don't want to take on leases. That was true even before the pandemic. We observe in our data very strong cyclicality in lease activity, right? Recession hits, employers leave the office. It's a difficult expense to make when times are tough. And having additional options, being able to leave the office and have your employers work at home makes that choice a little bit easier. This is, I think, especially true when you consider that a lot of the benefits of being in the office are really long-term investments. So if you think about what is lost by not bringing workers into the office, it's most commonly things like culture or attributes like the innovation and creativity that employers are bringing. Uh, employees are bringing, right? Those tend to be the types of things that are lost when you're no longer in the office and uh, mentorship, right, by younger employees. And if your time horizon is a lot shorter, if you think you may well fire these people anyway, if you're just trying to get through the recession, you may be less interested in the the long-term benefits that the office brings. It sounds like there's a lot more evidence to suggest that a recession would not be good for office owners than, than the opposite. 
That's right. And another example you could point to would be Twitter, whereby Elon Musk has tried sometimes to get employees back into the office, but he's also fired half of them. So even if he's getting the residual half to show up to the office, the overall space demand is likely to be lower just because he's fired a lot of workers. So that, I think, just reflects the reality that recessions are not good times for real estate. And finally, you like the office. Why is that? Is that because you're involved in teaching as well? Is it because you're involved in sh- with students? Is, is that what's driving you to the office? So I personally have a relatively short commute, so it's easy for me to come into the office. Uh, I, I teach and work at NYU and live nearby. So it's uh, not, a, not a big hardship, and I have a fairly small home apartment. So it's, it's also convenient for me to head to a different place, and I like my coworkers. I enjoy grabbing lunch and coffee and so on with them. So it makes sense for me in all three dimensions, but I think a lot of people are in a different situation. That's one of the things I've learned in the course of this project is a lot of people don't have the view towards the office that I personally have. They have a longer commute, they have a nicer house, and they don't like their colleagues potentially. That's Arpit Gupta. He's Associate Professor of Finance at NYU Stern. As always, I've left some links to relevant articles in the show notes. I'm Miriam Hall. Thanks for listening.